Hello, and welcome to another Sports Next Door podcast. My name is Owen. Today is Sunday, June 13th, and I'm joined, as I always am, by my neighbor, Max. How's it going, my friend? Good. It's been, what, a week and three days since I've been vaccinated, so walking around the streets, have that, like, MNRA swagger going, it (laughs) feels good to... There's a cloud that's been hanging over our heads every time we go into a store or an elevator uh talk to someone for too long and that cloud has largely dissipated which is an amazing feeling to have off the back yes it is a welcome sense of relief uh i saw quite a few people this weekend still obviously taking the precautions of trying to stay outside trying to keep your distance but there's not that same level of fear anymore and you're really starting to see it Numbers are going down, things are opening up, uh, and, and summer's here, and everyone's feeling much better than they were even like three weeks ago. So it's it's lovely. And um, yeah, great weekend. Sports were everywhere. I almost OD'd on sports this afternoon. We had like four major sports going at the same time, uh, not to mention tennis a little bit earlier in the day. So we've got plenty to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Let's get right into it. Alrighty, I guess I'll kick it off uh, with the largest event in the world right now. Um, I would say the French Open definitely up there, uh, but I'm going to start with the Euro Cup. Uh, and and truly, the the, the storyline that has dominated is um, the incident with Christian Eriksen. And shocking, really, really disturbing stuff. I was watching that game as it happened. Um had to had to change the channel. It was very frightening stuff. It's really, really uncommon when you see something as scary as that uh, and you don't expect it from these professional athletes. I remember it happened to Rich Peverly in 2014 when he collapsed on the bench and had to be resuscitated. And uh, it's just this scary moment. And I, I think we don't want to dwell on it too much, but really talk about the great things that happened afterward. I want to applaud the the Danish captain. Uh, he was very quick thinking, um, made sure that his teammates were covering it. He made sure uh, that Erickson didn't swallow his tongue um, and then was very comforting towards Erickson's wife throughout the whole process. And, and really like he was the leader in terms of getting people on the field protecting and, and made sure everything went off well and that's true leadership and really shone through there so I want to shout him out and then uh the great uh, acts from Romelu Lukaku of Belgium and then I believe Austria also scored today and and in their celebrations were just sh- shouting their love to Ericsson and hoping that he gets better and and we're I know the whole football world is praying for him and hoping that uh he'll make it through and maybe we'll see him back on the pitch again one day and it's a bummer because it, it really took away from maybe the greatest moment in Finland football history where they score that goal and have their first international competition win like of this level ever and truly a remarkable moment for them, but it was really subdued in their celebration. Um, and, and that kind of dominated Saturday. So then we go in fresh to Sunday and we have, have some great matches overall. The favorites have held, for the most part, uh, Belgium getting their win, England getting their win today against Croatia. Really, really good football from them. Uh, in Italy, of course, winning the very first match on Friday. And then Netherlands 
was poised to hold easily. And then that was probably the match of the weekend where Ukraine scores two goals in the last 10 minutes. Things are all tied up. And then the Dutch get a header that probably shouldn't have gone in, but they squeak away with a 3-2 win against Ukraine in their first uh, match of the tournament and and overall favorites have held in terms of uh, winning the games they're supposed to. But who knows? We may see some upsets as we move into the week here. Uh, we, we've got Scotland against Czech Republic as the first game going tomorrow. So looking forward to that one. That's pretty much it for the football fan cave. I don't think we have to take a break, Max. I think we'll just jump right into the combat corner. UFC 263 looked like an awesome event, and I'm ready for your break recap. Yeah, it was an awesome night of fights. Uh, belts were held, belts were changed, arms were snapped, faces were punched. Uh, Joe Rogan said, oh, a bunch a really solid night except for the crowd like booing every time any grappling seemed to happen whatsoever but i wanted to start with a fight that on paper seemed impossible to be boring and that held out true drew dober versus brad riddell at men's lightweight was such a banger just two strikers who are so dangerous and have been levels above most of the guys that they've been striking with in their time in the cage and man it was such a fun fight on uh, dober taking the first round it seemed like catching riddell with a nice straight in that orthodox southpaw matchup i think on uh, dober the southpaw just caught him clean and there was so much power in that shot it, it was the kind of thing that put Hernandez out, I remember, but Riddell weathered it. And this fight was like a striking fight where guys took turns using their grappling to try and get a rest or just clear the cobwebs a little. Um, you could tell Riddell had found his timing by the end of that round, though. He really pieced Dober up in the last minute. And I say found his timing. I think he really found his range. Dober was headhunting a bit throughout the fight, and Riddell found the distance he could stand at where Dober thought he could catch the head of Riddell, but couldn't quite. And Riddell had the head movement, the footwork to get out of the way and read when Dober swung. And then Riddell was just able to get in there with the jab, set up a couple of nice two, three beast combos with the hooks. Uh, there were so many strikes that I think someone not named Drew Dober would have gone, gone unconscious with. Um, the wrestling looked awesome from Riddell as well. Just this guy looks like a true top 15 lightweight, which I say all the time, like you can't get to that spot in that division without just being so elite across the board. And you knew his striking was elite, but it does take time to transition from Muay Thai to MMA striking. And I think this fight really highlighted and showcased that his striking has kind of made that evolution transformation and the wrestling also looked so solid from him both offensively and defensively so uh the second and third round he totally ran away with just outlanding to the legs to the body i think even to the head an awesome fight from brad riddell i'm excited to see what's next for this guy the fight i was most happy about on the main card though had to be Paul Craig versus Jamal Hill, the opener. Um, I had so many questions about Paul Craig going into this fight because, like I said, he's fought guys like Jamal Hill before, and he just 
he tries something stupid on the feet or his athleticism just doesn't let him get out of the way in time. So I was really curious how he would approach this because you have seen improvements in his stand-up game, but it's hard to know what to make of it when they're being showcased against guys with losing records or near 40. But he stayed really patient. He wasn't too aggressive. Like he wasn't throwing like stupid spinning shit that he's going to pay for. Uh, he was backing up. He was really using the teep kick, just mixing between knee and body. So not like high risk strikes where you can get caught, but just giving Hill things to think about. And then Hill slowly but surely backed him against the fence. But as soon as Craig's back was on the fence and he saw Hill getting ready to wind up he just shot in there made it too close for hill to connect with anything heavy and when the takedown failed he just pulled guard which like not the best takedown shot but when you're as good at ju- at jujitsu as paul craig is you can do that because he just got offensive right away i think he attacked an omoplata sweep off the back didn't work out but he stayed patient but busy just working to the next position and He goes for, I believe, the right arm in transition, abandons it, switches to the left arm, grabs it, rolls over, like, but keeps the arm and attacks it. And what, this sounds a bit barbaric, I know, but I love what he did because he didn't wait. He didn't go, okay, I've got you in this arm bar. Are you going to tap? He just like pulled I even said in the post-fight interview that's my opponent's job that's the ref's job and sure enough the opponent doesn't tap and the arm goes snap which was all well and good it's probably the ref not stopping it immediately after that snap that left a nasty taste in people's mouth and to Craig's credit he switched to punches after he had yanked the arm out of its joint and didn't do any further damage ref stops it shortly after that i know a lot of people upset about the ref in i'm sure that will get talked about plenty i just wanted to focus on the tactics to mitigate a very dangerous stand-up fighter from craig the fact that he can pull guards so confidently and is so dangerous that off his back attacking that arm bar switching arms midway and turning over he did it all in a span of three four seconds and just so deadly so dangerous i really think craig has made that next step forward and is ready to really do some damage at the top 15 um maybe not like high 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 level like top three top five guys but i think he's got the stand-up chops to hang with anyone and he's just so dangerous on the ground and he doesn't have to get on top of you he can just pull guard Mm -hmm. so can't wait to see what's next for paul craig so happy about that fight maya muhammad went pretty well exactly as it seems like it would on paper i don't have a lot to say about it um at Maya's age, she's not going to have the athleticism to really explode into takedowns. So against guys with solid technique, that's going to be really tricky. And Bilal Muhammad has solid technique. Strong, dense guy. Uh, Maya scored one takedown early, but other than that, it was just kind of a dominant stand-up from Muhammad. I mean, Maya's... MMA striking is a whole interesting topic in and of itself, but 
certainly not at that top 15 level. So a win for Bilal Muhammad, which probably feels pretty great after how his last fight went. And Damian Maya's star might finally have fallen um, at least out of the top 15. I'm not too sure what's next for him after this. We get to one of three five-rounders to kick it off. Not a bad one at all. This one probably could have been a main event. Nate Diaz versus Leon Edwards, which again went mostly as expected. Edwards dominant in the stand-up. Diaz bleeding like crazy. Uh, But Diaz did flip the script in that last minute caught Edwards hard, had him clowning, had him staggering, had him not knowing where he was. And what does Nate Diaz do? He points at him and loses the best window he had to knock out Leon Edwards and completely shock the world. But that almost seems more Diaz-esque how things actually proceeded. Uh, He's just not really a chaser. You saw it really in the second Connor fight. McGregor was absolutely gassed and running away from exchanges, and Diaz just happy to kind of showboat and slowly menace pout forward. So gets himself an opportunity no one thought he realistically could. I mean, I feel like that's the most hurt Leon Edwards has been in the octagon, which is huge for Diaz, but ultimately doesn't capitalize on it, I'm sure. His star stays where it is, rises. You know he's going to have plenty of narrative to go off and just feed his style. And uh, things proceed. I was kind of disappointed by Edwards. I I felt like he kept it much lower volume than he could have. Nate Diaz was a very weird opponent. He was constantly posing like he'd almost shove his ass out and just put his hands on his hips and he was waiting because he'd explode at Edwards right after he did it so he was definitely trying to set up a trap but it's a little too obvious it also definitely did frustrate Edwards I've never seen him swing that hard when he did throw he was really trying to land heavy but more volume would have been more impressive I felt like he could have gone for it a little harder but I think he also feels like he's just slowly but steadily earned his position where he is and don't change what got you to the dance party and hey he's probably gonna fight for the title in the next calendar year so hard to criticize a nine fight dominant winning streak that results in that the next fight the co-main event, the flyweight rematch between Brandon Moreno and Davison Figueiredo. The first fight being an absolute war where Figgy landed those God of War fists like over and over again. And Moreno just ate them, answered back, and both men went through fire. And especially rounds one through four were absolutely bonkers. Real back and forth. This fight totally flipped the script, though. Brandon Moreno, just an unsolvable puzzle for Davison Figueredo Saturday night. I I think Figueredo was worried about gassing the same way he did in that first fight and was trying to be a lot more tactical, a lot more composed, but it totally worked against him. He just could never get going in the striking. And 
I think once you put yourself in that hole, you're asking questions rather than just body moving automatically. It's really hard to dig yourself out because Moreno, a bit of an awkward style stand-up wise and Figueredo was just looked in his own head, not really sure what he was doing or trying to accomplish. And it escalated quickly, but just pure dominance from Moreno in the first two rounds. First round really striking heavy, second round a little more grappling. And then the third round, he gets the finish off an awesome sequence of advance. Um, I wanted to start with a scramble where he was on top of the back of Figueredo because you see that situation in every other division and a guy climbs on the back, tries to wrap a triangle in and then look for a choke. But with the back elevated so much, they're just going to slide down and off. The guy on the bottom does like a little shake and the guy falls off pretty easy because their body's carrying a lot of weight and gravity's working against them. But when you're 130 something pounds, say, it's a lot easier to hang on. So one of the first times in that like shake off situation, I've actually seen the guy on top hang on and he from there he got to the back rolled him over and did such a nice job just switching between i'm choking with my right arm i'm choking with my left arm i'm punching you in the face with my right hand i'm punching you in the face with my left hand is this choke almost in maybe oh you fought this one off back to it and sure enough you just mix it up you keep the body triangle tight and that choke gets under the neck eventually Uh, an amazing moment for mexican mixed martial arts having their first true-born Mexican champion in the UFC, I believe. I think Cain Velasquez, born in the U.S., though very proud of his Mexican heritage. And the trend of UFC belts changing hands in 2021 continues. Almost forgot that what that was like last year. I don't think a single one changed hands in 2020. But Brendan Moreno, considering the trend, which I love to see, it j- just keeps the sport turning over it. It makes it feel like every title fight, that's a lot more of a possibility, which is what you want, that unknown. So congratulations to Brendan Moreno. The last fight, the main event, Israel Adesanya versus Marvin Vittori. More or less, fight went as expected with Adesanya being the way better striker and Vittori's grappling not being at the level it needed to to get it done having said that Vittori was kind of surprisingly impressive and effective he really as much as his legs got lit up like a Christmas tree over five rounds Adesanya just ever since that Romero fight it's like it clicked for him especially out of the southpaw dance how much damage he can do with that power leg kick because it's been so evident he started doing it in the Romero fight and then it was a huge part of the Costa fight. He tried to do in the Blahovich fight. Blahovich checks kicks really well. And then, it, again, probably the single most effective strike uh, Saturday night against Vittori. He just landed it again and again. You saw Vittori's legs buckling. But like I said, to his credit, he continued to walk forward, never really stopped. He did take down Adesanya a couple times. And... I'll say again, especially the first takedown he got to his credit, he did want to do some damage with it, progress position. You saw Blahovich 
be very, very careful about keeping his hips and body tight on Adesanya so he couldn't get up. Vittori tried to posture up, get ground and pound off, and Adesanya is a really, really good defensive grappler at this point. And you give him space to work, he'll pop right back up. That's what happened. Later takedowns that Vittori landed, I thought it was more Adesanya doing all the work to get up and Vittori was more trying just to hold him down but for the most part Vittori couldn't even get Adesanya down a fair amount of time spent with Vittori trying having Adesanya's back against the cage trying to make something happen but Adesanya just too good with the elbows to the head the balance the wide hips and fighting off the hands of Vittori what else uh yeah adesanya's back was against the cage a fair bit which again credit to vittori but nothing came of it i mean adesanya played matador perfectly with the head movement but i've never really seen anyone get him is he into that vulnerable a position that vulnerable consistently i think the reach of adesanya makes it so dangerous even when you have him there you can't really swing for the fences willy-nilly because he will counter and make you pay. And you saw that play out a couple times. So overall, Adesanya looked exactly as good as we thought. Marvin Vittori, tougher than a lot of people thought. I saw some people saying Marvin Vittori is a better Paulo Costa than Paulo Costa. Maybe that's what we wouldn't seen if that alleged bottle of wine hadn't been drunk in September. I'm not sure. Anyway, what this fight really did was get me even more excited for Adesanya Whitaker. That's what Adesanya called for after the fight, which is awesome. It seems like that's what's going to happen next. And I think Whitaker does. You need a couple things. You need really high fight IQ. And you need some good wrestling ability to beat Adesanya. And Whitaker probably has those two things more than anyone else at middleweight. The explosiveness a little different than uh, Blahovich, the other guy who's taken a win off him. But I'm so curious to see, because I know Whitaker is going to plan for those leg kicks. I I know he's going to figure out how to best like mitigate that reach gap with his explosiveness take notes from their first fight and i think that's the best fight you can make at middleweight right now and especially with vittori constantly getting adesanya's back against the cage i'd love to see the fight with whitaker having adesanya in that position because the striking he's shown against Till, against Cannoneer, against Gaslam has just been leaps and bounds of what we saw when he was champion and when he fought Izzy. So I think that rematch is going to be so awesome. And that's absolutely the fight to make at middleweight because Israel Adesanya continues to be a fantastic champion at that division. So hats off to Izzy for another successful title defense and hats off even more to walking out to Somewhere I Belong by Lincoln Park loved that uh that's gonna wrap up this combat corner and unless o wants to jump in you're probably gonna hear a break right now and we're right back sports next door moving right along in the show it is now time for the baseball bit owen yes sir the Blue Jays get a huge series victory over the Boston Red Sox this weekend taking two of three and uh 
the games that they lose seem to be absolute heartbreakers. Probably should have been a series sweep. They're up 5-1 in the very first game, and they fall uh, in the bottom of the ninth on a walk-off, 6-5, to five, but then proceed to come back out in the next two games and absolutely light up the Red Sox. Today's game was an 18-4 to four victory uh, for the Bluebirds, and they have hit they hit 14 home runs over the three games in this series. Vladdy had his 20th and 21st home runs of the season this weekend. He leads the majors. Uh, Teoscar Hernandez with six RBIs today. That's his new uh, career record in a game. And yeah, big, big series for them to be able to heat up just in time uh, for this team to go ahead and, and play some weaker teams coming up on the schedule as they have had the hardest strength of schedule out of all the American East uh, American league East teams so far. So hopefully they can pick up some ground with a little bit of a lighter schedule and, and a big series win against the team that they're chasing in the wild card standings, at least. But besides that, that's it for me in baseball, really quick one. I'm going to now toss it over to you, back to you, Max. Uh, we're playing a little tennis here with our words, but uh, now you got to talk some tennis. So go ahead. Yes. It feels like it's been a while uh, since Wednesday night when we last recorded Friday morning in the men's ATP, we had two awesome semifinal matchups. And then just today in the morning, we had the French open finals. I, it feels like it's been so long. I don't have a ton to say about Friday's semifinals other than just hats off to Novak Djokovic for doing what some have called the most difficult challenge in sports, beating Rafael Nadal in stadium, Philippe Chatier at the French Open on clay court, five sets. Um, so impressive that that match. At, there were the two sets. The second and third set was some of the best, the best tennis I've ever watched, really. Both guys on just such another level with their shot making. And I think the fact that they're at a similar place in age and kind of style of play, it almost let them ramp up their game and play each other with a similar style even more. It was just so insane how both men were constantly playing offense and defense at the same time. And the shots they were returning or put aways, like winners directed at them. And then they would not only defend that, but like find a way to make it challenging for the other man to make their next shot. And you would have rallies of five or six shots back and forth like that, all of which felt like they could be winners. And just the games that went on in court management, the level of play and shot making, it was so fantastic to watch. I could go on about it forever, but Djokovic comes out on top. Maybe a bit of questions about injuries, a bit of question about the lighting. I know Rafa fans, I get it, but Djokovic was the man. And in the finals, he, just continued to wow going down two sets after like some blown momentum at the top of the first set where he was both men held throughout the whole set and then on the 11th game so to go up six five Djokovic breaks and after you've like gotten your serve hold five times in a row you think the six should be easy money but credit to Sitsi Pass battling back and broke when it counted early 
sent you into a tie break, took it, took the second set a lot easier and put Djokovic's back up against the wall. He he was playing a lot of the same style as Djokovic earlier, just making returns defensively and turning them into offense on one shot. Uh, some fantastic serving, some success with the drop shot early. A really strong at net play from Sitsi Pass. But over time, it's I, I don't know if Djokovic kicked it into a higher gear right off the bat, if Sitsi Pass fell, just faltered a step. You definitely saw that later in the match, but in the third set, when it really mattered, Djokovic just kicked it up and the fourth game especially i think is what they'll talk about it went into like six deuces uh djokovic having several game points sitsi pass holding it off so well that the serving especially early on was so fantastic from him then like Djokovic's match against Berrettini, he was facing a guy who could serve absurdly well and had like an impossibly hard forehand. Tsitsipas had that, plus insane court coverage, a more than serviceable drop shot, backhand slice. This was a guy with ridiculous athleticism that could make every shot in the book in tennis. And if you gave him a free ball, it was over. That was, I think, where Djokovic struggled a lot early. A lot of his shots looked kind of lackluster. They were just lacking a killer instinct and they were sitting there kind of in the middle of the court for Tsitsipas to put away. I don't know if the strategy was to wear down Tsitsipas a little. Djokovic kept a constant tempo and maybe ramped it up a little where Tsitsipas came out guns blazing and definitely faltered as it went. And you really saw midway into the third set after Djokovic broke once that re- the difference become very apparent and one like credit the king for being the best because once breaking once in the third set still down to nothing but once he grabbed that momentum it felt like it was his match and he really never lost a step from there breaking every set like he needed to because if Novak Djokovic has had an amazing 2021 and that's how I'm going to end this segment. But if you had to nitpick at one thing so far, it's been tie breaks. He's been pretty brutal in them uh, this year. And I think he knew that and played the breaks when they managed to avoid the tie breaks, but he just kept Tsitsipas moving um, kept him trying to make those really fantastic shots and Sitsi Pass's ability to do that faltered. Some ridiculous drop shots, as always. Just this is the best tennis player in the world. And you love a good underdog, but it's so fun to watch the greatest do it. And with Wimbledon and the Australian Open ahead, Djokovic has a chance to. I think, like, put his name in the number one spot for tennis greatness in 2021. I I don't want to jinx it and say Grand Slam anything, but just already what he's done five months into this year is so impressive, and he could sit out the rest of the tour for the year. And when we do our end-of-year show, I would still be talking about the 2021 he's had. So... 
what awesome tennis to watch from Novak Djokovic, this French Open, um, overthrowing the King of Clay. And, but you knew that would matter so much less. That would not feel the same if he didn't pick up that trophy for the second time. Uh, as he has, I think, previously, he beat Rafa in the French and then went on to lose in the finals and then won the next year when Rafa wasn't competing or was knocked out by someone else. I'm not, I'm a bit fuzzy on that. But he beats Rafa in a thriller and then wins the finals. As going down to nothing, I can't say as dominant as always. It was an incredible nail biter and so full of so many momentum swings. But once he got going in the third set, it didn't really feel in doubt. He really locked in. The errors went down. The serving was phenomenal. The shot making, absurd. Uh, man, I just love watching Djokovic play tennis and I'm so happy to see this for him. So congratulations to him. Yeah, definitely inching closer to greatness uh, with his 19th Grand Slam trophy against a highly ranked competitor, but since he passed only competing in his first ever Grand Slam final. So there definitely was a bit of an experience differentiation there that's awesome recap we're gonna move on to our talking hockey segment and uh i guess we'll start first with the game that happened this afternoon to kick off the third round of the stanley cup playoffs the new york islanders go into the lion's den uh into tampa and they take game one with a really clean really solid effort um Obviously, this is the way that they played all season. They play incredible system, defensive hockey. They are very opportunistic, but they also don't take a lot of penalties. Um, and two opportunistic chances, Barzell on a, on a quick break, and then uh, a shot from the point from Pulak that should have been saved by Vasilevsky and ended up being a huge uh, miss for him because Tampa scores late with the, the net pulled, but they cannot – tie things up. And, and if you're the Islanders, you got to have a supreme amount of confidence. Now, obviously losing last year in this same series, in this same situation uh, has left you with some scars and left you with some learning experiences. And uh, they've come out and made a statement. They are here and they are for real. And uh, Tampa's just got to adjust as they've had to do quite a few times over the past couple of years and they've had their success, but uh, we'll see how they respond in game two. Cause the Islanders method seems really sustainable and, and they're still managing to be successful. And it might be this time where they finally get over that third round hump. Yeah. Just the second time in the playoffs so far that the lightning have been held to one goal. And that really feels like what the Islanders did. That was noteworthy, hard to imagine you can sustain that, but the offense hasn't been as hard to come by, especially in that Bruins series as I thought it would be for them. So interested to see what counter adjustments the lightning make. I caught bits and pieces of it and I thought Varlamov looked more than sick at times. <sighs> holding off some of the chances that the lightning generated, but yeah, we're in the third round. Yeah, definitely part of my sports coma where I had been watching Euro and I watched the end of the French open. And then at three o'clock it was 
basketball, hockey, Euro, and baseball all going at the same time. And it was just kind of flip, 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 flip through each channel and um, definitely missed on some pieces of games because I was too busy trying to consume it all at once. But uh, yeah, definitely caught the, the end of this game most of the third period because of the basketball game being pretty much over. Uh, and yeah, really surprised to see that Tampa couldn't get anything going. In the other series, which will kick off uh, tomorrow, tomorrow, today, if you're listening to it on Monday, and uh, that will be between the Vegas Golden Knights and the Montreal Canadiens. Vegas participating in their third, I guess, conference finals, you would call it, their third third round in the four years that they have existed as a franchise. Uh, the fans just know immediate success. And the Montreal Can- Canadiens are Canada's champion, although I don't know if much of Canada is really cheering them on behind them, uh, but they are there and they were really, really great. And you got to give them their credit. They really dominated the North division there <laughs> going on a, what was it? A seven game unbeaten run now out of the North division. And they will see if they're this similar brand of hockey can apply to a team that is going to have much better defensive system than anything they've seen so far. Um, similar goaltending and then Vegas is a team that seems to morph its style depending on what team they play and they're just deep all the way through uh all three d pairs all four forward lines and and Montreal is going to have their hands full because their calling card so far has been kind of weathering the storm and capitalizing on chances and now they're going up against a team that is pretty uh string (laughs) stingy in terms of allowing chances and have a great defensive core and can kind of match their style and it'll be really interesting to see how Montreal will manage to create offense and uh I definitely see Vegas having the upper hand in this series yeah it's interesting I I would say the Canadians were the storm in the Jets series but I can see the Habs adapting to that Vegas brand of hockey and we get something similar to what a lot of the wild series was where it's a low scoring affair, a goaltender duo and never count carry price out in one of those. So two stellar performances and the Habs players don't need to be amazing for that many games. I'm really interested. I think both teams have some, strong adaptions they're going to need to make uh mainly for the Habs what you pointed out the Golden Knights defensively their top four just so much better than what the Jets have as well as the Leafs but uh for Vegas like their offense was coming completely off Colorado's like run and gun style of offense as a counterattack, and I think that's going to be gone so they're going to have to reboot the system and figure out what the offensive keys of success to success are so i'm wondering if it's going to be a bit of a probing first game first two games which you never know i'd say that could also just go absolutely wide open you really never know with hockey but those are the things on my mind heading into this series here's why i think it'll be a little wide open to begin Montreal has not played in a building with more than 5,000 fans in nearly two years. Uh, And this will be their first experience traveling 
<laughs> uh, somewhere as far away as Vegas and having to go into T-Mobile Arena and, and meet that absolutely deafening crowd um, with a lot of the lights and a lot of the action going on. And um, it's a young team in Montreal, of course. They have the playoff experience from some of their vets, but the, the core of this team is driven by those younger guys. And it's going to be their first experience in a while in an atmosphere like this. And I think Vegas is really going to feed off that energy and come out with, with some ferocity. So that's, that would be my reasoning behind it starting uh, much more open than you might expect in a traditional series where they're trying to poke and prod each other and, and look for weaknesses. There you go. Monday <laughs> night, we will know. Yes, sir. All right. We'll take one last break here and wrap things up with some basketball. And we're back, Sports Next Door, to wrap up the show with our basketball storylines. We've got four series to talk about, and I'm going to see if we can thread this needle and time it so that as we arrive at our last series, Denver-Phoenix, that game is just wrapping up. I think we're around the 10-minute mark in the fourth quarter right now. But we're going to lead with Milwaukee-Brooklyn, and a series that looked like it might be over is now tied 2-2. I don't know if I can pat myself on the back for this one, but I said previewing it and just talking about Brooklyn's chances in general, you can't not consider injury after we really have more questions than answers about what this big three looks like together. And that's continued in this round against the Bucks. And I don't know, it seems like a huge part of the storyline to me, but, uh, I don't know what you think. Yeah, I, I, we'll see how far we can get before um, we get to the Suns Nuggets series. I don't know if I have as much to talk about as, as I normally do, but yeah, it's to, to speak on Milwaukee and Brooklyn, it's, it, you never want to bet on an injury, but just with the way that this season has gone, you had to have foreseen one of these guys or more having some issues. And surprisingly, it's not the one who came off uh, an Achilles tear just uh, a year ago, or I guess two years now. Today's the two-year anniversary Raptors championship, by the way. Shut that out. (laughs) What a time to be alive. Um, Anyways, this series between the Bucks and the Nets has been a letdown, to be brief and blunt. Um, Two blowouts to start, and then you get the absolute rock fight that is game three, and really... Uh, hard to fathom how these two teams both scored under 90 points in this era of basketball, but it was just terrible offense on both sides. People refusing to run sets Uh, pretty physical, which is what, if you're Milwaukee, that's what you're hoping for out of these games. And it came down to in game three, at least Kevin Durant being out of this world, but Bruce Brown having a, young player in the playoffs moment and going it's Bruce Brown time and just bricking a layup uh, for the, for the game when you probably want to get it into the hands of the greatest scoring player, maybe ever in terms of how he can score. And so that's a big, big win for Milwaukee feels a little bit like how Toronto won that double overtime game uh, in game three, when Milwaukee was up 2 0. Uh, and, and the tide quickly shifts. The, the fourth game goes pretty uh, equal for the first half. 
shot making on both sides, uh, holidays getting in there a little bit more in terms of buckets and PJ Tucker's like inside the Jersey of Kevin Durant. Every time he has the ball, Katie, of course, still going to make shots, but PJ is playing really physical. He's fighting over every screen, even when it's 40 feet from the basket, they're really trying to get up in the face of Kevin and, and make the other guys on the Brooklyn Nets beat them. Uh, and it started to work. And then the Kyrie injury happens and it's uh, it doesn't look good. Pretty bad ankle sprain. It looks like, and, and a high one at that as he was holding up around his shin area, which means you're looking at four to six weeks at a minimum. Uh, of course, <laughs> cannot diagnose it just from looking at the mechanism of injury, but it didn't look good. And that's a huge loss where now this, Nets team has to rely on Mike James and Chris Chioza and Tyler Johnson if they're bringing guys off the bench. And that's reminiscent of what this Nets team looked like last year when the Raptors just absolutely creamed them in that first round series. And it's it Kevin Durant, he's an incredible player and he does so many amazing things on both sides of the ball. But when you're when your team is built around having at least two generational superstars and then a bunch of role guys and, and you're down to one, then the weaknesses really become apparent. And that's what happened. And uh, Giannis taking it at Blake and, and getting lots of free throws where he makes half of them, but then Middleton and Drew Holiday really doing a great job creating shots. Pat Connaughton was great in this game for the Bucks, even after taking an elbow to the face where he just opened up like a fruit gusher around his eyeball. Um, but Milwaukee got great contribution from their role guys because they see more confidence in, in facing the end of the Brooklyn Nets bench as opposed to their top starting players or their top role players, right? It's a lot easier to go and attack Tyler Johnson and, and run actions with Tyler Johnson than even like Joe Harris, who is not the best defender, but he's a starter for a reason and he competes and he's got that awareness to at least play some defense. And when you're getting more Nick Claxton minutes, as opposed to Blake Griffin or Jeff Green or whoever else you want, then things just open up a little bit more for Milwaukee crowds behind them. Uh, and they're right back in this series and, yeah, it, it comes down truly to injuries where many of these playoff series have. Um, but that's an important part when you're building a roster is you got to look at how the best ability is availability. And for the Brooklyn Nets, it could be costly to their season. Who knows? Maybe Harden has been healthy this whole time and now they're just going to pull call on him to come in and, and contribute. So it'll be really, really interesting to see what game five looks like. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. I mean there's no season without and with that kind of grade two sprain uh level of injury at in a do or die situation i wonder if they make the decision to pull the trigger and um throw them in there but it, it's also we're in the second round still so yeah great like harden goes injures himself more and gets you through the second round it, he's out for the third and fourth round. So there'd be plenty to criticize about that decision and how much more does it really get you? I do wonder how uh, Giannis is working on those free throws. 
I heard this uh, fascinating thing from my roommate the other week about this study they ran where they had guys take jump shots from like one spot on the court consistently and then another group take jump shots from two spots on the court consistently. And what they found was the guys taking shots from one spot on that day could like hit the shots from that one spot better than the guys could hit from either of those two spots. But in terms of longer term retention, like you return them to the gym a week later, say, and the guys who were shooting from different spots actually were more accurate. It's a better long-term retention skill development. I don't know if you know this exact study I'm talking about, or it's a basic principle. No, I, I don't know the exact study, but it is something that I have also heard about in the past. It's it's the variance, right? The thing that makes you so successful as an athlete in your variety of skills is you work on a variety of scenarios. And it's not to say that you're working on a different skill, like basketball, For it's, it's a jump shot, right? That part is consistent and you can't really replicate that in other sports the same way, but you're going to be better if you're shooting from different ranges, different situations, moving from side to side because it just works on your touch and how you perceive that range from where you are relative to the basket. Um, and with Giannis, I'm sure he has spent, because he's an incredible work ethic, but he spent hours and hours and hours and hours doing that same thing over and over again. And while it should be muscle memory, it's something that again has been talked about. Whereas soon as you, something is off in your rhythm shooting a free throw and you miss that one, it completely shatters you. And he has been broken now for a long time. It's, it's completely and utterly mental. He is a, he is a fine shooter, but he's just so deep in his own head that he takes 15 seconds in between each free throw and then short arms it, right? Like we've seen air balls. We've seen, yeah, just terrible free throws. And I think for him, he's got to, the reason why I said last podcast, speed it up a little bit is so that you think about it less. And it's more of that muscle memory that you've trained for those hours and hours and hours. Yeah. I remember hearing that like Shaq could drain them at like an 80% clip in the gym. And I think that's that effect I'm talking about when you do it for like an hour, then the next 10 minutes, your money. But then when you show up to the game the next day, like that immediate short term muscle memory is gone. And it's a, every time you shoot a free throw, even though it's from the exact same spot, you still have to calibrate. You still have to look at the net, figure out where you are in a 3D world. And it's a new phenomenon every time. So it's about teaching yourself how to calibrate and take aim rather than teaching yourself the exact angle and amount of force from behind the free throw line. So uh, Giannis, if you're listening, would love like, coach, I, we got you. <laughs> um damn i had one more thing to say and it completely dropped well i got one last piece of advice for Giannis: stop taking pull-up threes with 20 seconds left on the shot clock you can he can get like he can always get a better shot than that because even if Blake is in front of him around the rim when he's driving, they always still bring that second defender, and he's been great at finding open shooters. So whenever he shoots a three, everyone on Milwaukee is going, and everyone on Brooklyn is going, yes, thank you, Giannis. Like it's, there's, he should not be taking more than like four a game. 
And those should be ones where it's reset to him with six seconds left on the shot clock. And he's just taking the one dribble three. That is a higher percentage for him. But if he's bringing the ball down in transition and then shooting a three, like that is just terrible. And again, if I'm a coach there, I am absolutely reaming him out. I don't care that he's my superstar. He knows better than that. Remembered what I was going to say. It's also just free throws seem like the most mental part of basketball and not even that connected to uh, your skill and ability because there's few guys in the league right now who you could say have the hand-eye skill and deft touch of Luka Doncic and look at what his free throw numbers were this playoff. So a lot more than just your motor coordination and what you're able to do. Yeah. A team that benefited from Luca's poor free throw shooting was the Los Angeles Clippers. Love these segues, but <laughs> And that's the next series that we're going to get right into. Uh, they absolutely blow out the Jazz in game three, but we're going to rewind to game two first, where Donovan Mitchell was once again spectacular. And this Utah Jazz team just hit a barrage of threes. Gobert was very active. Um, the supporting cast was like, this was not, this is not your nineties, eighties, Utah's jazz team, right? This is a team with a bunch of super skilled guys who can all create their own shot and are just going to absolutely knock down an open shot. Um, and <laughs> the Clippers love going down Oh two, but then uh, I was seeing it all over Twitter last night. Kawhi downloaded the Donovan Mitchell patch into his software and, uh, managed to transfer some of that over to Paul George as well. And he was on Mitchell early to start game three. Lots and lots of high ball pressure. The whole night I was watching with my parents and I was telling them, this is where Utah misses Mike Conley. Because when Donovan Mitchell is your primary playmaker and and handler of the ball and Kawhi is up in his grill like that, there's maybe not a better perimeter defender when Kawhi is chosen to lock in and absolutely shut you down. And it really, really disrupted all of Utah's offensive sets. They were hard doubling whenever um, someone came up to screen and trying to get the ball out of Donovan's hands. And he had no points in the first quarter and had very few in the first half. I don't have it on me right now, but it, it completely disrupted Utah's offense. They were still able to stay relatively attached to the Clippers in that first half. And then Paul George had his best game of the playoffs so far. Uh, he had six threes and 32 points. He was really, really great and, and bought in more so on the defensive end than he has in, in previous games. And the Clippers, it was their turn to have a shooting clinic. I think they shot over 50% from three in that game. And when you do that, you're going to win nine times out of 10. And if you're Utah, then you got to be a little bit hopeful that they can't replicate that in game four, but you're going to need more from Gobert um, it just in terms of he was getting pulled out a little bit more than in games one and two, uh, away from the pain and, and the Clippers were able to create more open shots from behind the line when they were, uh, pulling him away from the basket and, and they were able to blow by him just a little bit more. And then they're going to need to figure out how to get away from the Clippers hard doubles of Mitchell because Gobert is not like a Bruce Brown, not like a Draymond Green where you can throw the ball to him in a short roll situation out of a double team. And he can then pick a part of defense in a four on three situation. That's just not what he does. And so if you're Utah, maybe you're thinking about 
and this is risky, but you could run like a George Niang at the five or a Bogdanovich at the five for short stints of time while the Clippers are performing those hard doubles, because then absolutely lethal offensive situation, but then you're just giving up so much of your defensive scheme when Gobert's not on the floor. So it's definitely a balancing act that they have to consider, but the shooting is truly what this series has boiled down to before, because these are the two number one and number two best three-point shooting teams in the league this season. And a bunch of guys who can really knock it down. Reggie Jackson had some awesome shots in this game. Um, And it seems like whichever team is hotter from behind the line is going to be the one to take it. So it's how much can you disrupt those rhythm shots and and contest without giving up too many blow-bys and dunks from Kawhi, as we saw in game three. Yeah, he's been on a different level at times and is playing at that level that had some people calling him the best in the world. And I don't know how consistently he has to do that before those talks really heat up again. But if he keeps at it, I think that's where the discussion will be at in a week, two weeks. Yeah. Hopefully we'll see Mike Conley for game four, uh, just in terms of like wanting to watch him play because he's great, but also it gives that huge release valve for Donovan Mitchell. So when he's throwing out of a double team, it's not going to George Niang. It's not going to Oni. It's not going to even Joe Ingles, great playmaker, but he's not explosive attacking a a team in rotation. Like he's more of a slow break you down in a methodical manner. Whereas Mike Conley can catch that pass out of the double team and be quick enough to get by the rotating defense and then attacking the pain. Then it's a lob to go bear or it's a kick to an open three. So hopefully he can be healthy in time for game four because Utah jazz at, at full strength is just, it reaches that next tier of creation when you've got five of those guys who can create their own shot as opposed to four. Um, and if you're the Clippers, that's a big win confidence, a big blowout win. And you just got to try and replicate what you've been doing in, in this game three and really continuing that ball pressure, which is not, um, not an easy thing to do. It takes a lot of energy to do so, but I mean, the backs against the wall and they seem to play well when they go down. Oh, two, as we've seen so far in the first two rounds of the playoffs, the last two series to talk about, um, not nearly as interesting or, or have like your hot, but hot button discussion points, um, Philadelphia taking game three in Atlanta, once again, Trey Young receives the steady dose of Simmons and Tybal, and um, the refereeing of this game was also a, a big point of contention as Philly fans, uh, or pardon me, Atlanta fans getting unhappy with the uh, light whistle on Embiid while also owning the most uh, foul drawing player in a long time in, in Trey Young. And uh, this game was tough for Trey because he is so incredibly talented at creating contact and drawing fouls. And this was really his first playoff scenario where he wasn't getting those calls because in the playoffs, the physicality ramps up and, and things get called a little bit looser than, than in the regular season. And so that leads Trey to emphasize the drawing of the fouls even more so than he would normally do because he's not used to not getting those calls. And so when you've got bigger, lankier, athletic guys like Tybal and Simmons 
and they can use their physicality and Trey's not getting bailed out with the foul calls. Like maybe some of those are fouls, right? That's what we talk about in basketball. There's some inconsistency there, but when they're not getting called, then it allows the size and the length of Diable and Simmons to really disrupt what Trey's trying to do. Um, and then that led to a, a poor performance on his end. And then when he's not running, he's the engine of this Atlanta team. And it, it's much more difficult for them to create offense, despite having Bogdanovich and Herter. Uh, just things slow down when it's not in the when the ball is not in Trey's hands. And then on the other side, Embiid continues to be just absolutely superb, despite his uh, meniscus hanging by a thread. It's seemingly now it feels like, but uh, yeah, that's been the story so far through games two and three. And we'll see if Atlanta has any adjustments to make. Um, the big thing that people have been calling for for a while is to get more off ball action for Trey Young, but I just don't know if he's at that level yet. Again, I've said he's more of a Steve Nash than a Steph Curry type player, but that would be a way to get him a little bit more offense is running him off screens and trying to get him separated from Simmons and Tybal in those like down screen action, floppy actions, horns action, stuff like that, uh, as opposed to just having him running pick and roll uh, from the top of the arc. Uh, so we'll see what the adjustment is made by Nate McMillan. But for now, it's it Philly is starting to take control and, and they're in the driver's seat as the number one seed uh, with that big win on the road. Yeah, we've got we're at the three minute mark of the Suns Nuggets game. So I'll see if I can kill a little more time by saying it's really hard to feel bad for Trey Young or anyone with that style of play when it seems like the thought going through their head is how can I get fouled, not how can I put this ball in the net, which don't hate the player, hate the game, I know, but I would love to see some sort of rule change. And I think a lot of people where fouls that happen because there was zero intention to score don't get called as fouls or even like get against you. And that would really change the game. It, it, it's so difficult right though because like people will ask for a little bit looser like defensive restrictions but then you'll look back at the early 2000s where like those games the it's just brutal some of the offense right i'm not saying uh anything on what is and isn't a foul has to change i'm just saying you look at the shooter's intentions yeah and if if you if you the referee thinks this was a ridiculously low percentage chance to score then it's not a foul <laughs> like if you if you're sprinting up coming around the three and you see Low, i know lowry hits one shot a year where he just yeets it and it goes <laughs> at at the like cost of that like maybe even the basket still counts in that mm. situation it's just not a shooting foul when Trey Young dribbles, dribbles, gets a guy to jump up and shoots into that player. It's not a foul. It, it it's not because Trey Young wasn't fouled on that. It's because he had zero intention to score on the play. Yeah, it's definitely something that will be continually talked about and looked into by the league. But their thought process right now, you got to imagine, is like we don't care. The offense is great. People love offense. Um, the ratings may not reflect that, but the engagement on other platforms seem to suggest that uh, people love Trey Young's style of play for the most part and, and value the offense over the 
the ticky tack complainers who um, don't appreciate the foul calls. <laughs> That was such a nice way to put where I'm at. <laughs> yeah. And all you have to respect that the reason the players are guarding him so aggressively and jumping up and he's able to get those calls is because he's such a lethal scorer. Because if they give him that a- extra half second, he can put a ridiculous floater or three-pointer in. And you have to respect that part of the game for sure just don't respect what he does with those abilities yeah well um i know you're you've you've jumped into basketball more than recent years and so you've missed out on the whole harden experience but that is what many fans have been crying out against houston for the past four or five years and uh now he's in brooklyn not playing right now but um Trey has elements of that in his game. And there are definitely other guys as well around the league who, who get away with that stuff as well. But those are the two that are at the forefront of being uh, talented foul creators. We'll call I them. saw something funny too, where Embiid was trying to say, I'm not happy about this affecting my team, but also couldn't criticize it too hard. <laughs> Yes, he's also someone who benefits from uh, talented foul creation. <laughs> and will own it. Lowry's up there too. Oh, absolutely. On both ends. Half of the charges he takes, he flies much further than oh, yeah. the momentum generated by the opposition. But we love him for it, right? Bulldog of Bay Street. <laughs> All right, we're on this last series now. Two minutes to go. A nine-point deficit as the Phoenix Suns look to close out the Denver Nuggets in a sweep. And and I had Phoenix picked, but I did not expect the thorough domination that uh, this series has shown. Uh, Paul and Booker, again, combining now for what looks like 64 points as it stands right now. Uh, Chris Paul had that 15 assists, zero turnover game, I think, Going coming into game four, he had 33 assists, three turnovers, and 11 uh, assist to turnover ratio is is pretty friggin' awesome. Um, and he has controlled these games on a string, and Devin Booker has just been unguardable. Now, it will be interesting to see because Booker has, again, I'll say, he hasn't faced a top top tier defender. And so if we see the Clippers come out of the other side of this bracket, that it will be the hardest challenge he's had to face. I think if the Jazz come out, you have the similar uh, issue with the Nuggets, with the Lakers, where they have solid perimeter defenders. And Royce O'Neal's been awesome. But it, you need that extra size and strength against Booker to really give him troubles. And, and no one's yet to do that. And he's really been emerging as as an awesome player in these playoffs. And and the story has, of the series has been DeAndre Ayton because, again, still not putting up the stats that jump out of the box score, but he's been pivotal in his role of staying disciplined, not getting into foul trouble, and being able to at least make Jokic's life as difficult as possible. Now, Jokic put up 32, 20, and 10 in game three, and the Nuggets still lost. And Ayton after the game was like, shocked looking at the numbers going that's why he's the mvp and there's an immense amount of respect between these two guys but um ayton is taxing Jokic on each play that he makes and 
it allows the biggest thing is it allows the rest of the Phoenix Suns to stay glued to their man on the perimeter and make those shots more difficult for Austin Rivers, for Facundo Campazzo, for an injured Michael Porter Jr., for and probably injured Will Barton, uh, for an Aaron Gordon, right? And and so when the shot making doesn't come like it did in the Portland series, then like you just see how big of a gap there is without Jamal Murray for this team. And, and even if Jamal Murray's in this series, I think Denver now re- has to reassess based on this series and think we probably need one more perimeter creator. Um, and that's the thing that they've been missing. And that's why they've been tied to Bradley Beal for so many years now as, as a par- potential trade partner. But uh, yeah, Denver's definitely got to see what else they can get there. Cause Porter again, super talented, and he could even be the number one on this team, but the back issue is starting to return. And, and that's something that's been lingering throughout his entire life. So uh, can you rely on him to go a whole regular season and whole playoffs without suffering some sort of injury that sets him back? Like it's happening now. So you got one quick fix to apply to this Nuggets team based off how the Sun series has gone you improve their offensive consistency or ability to challenge defend the paint defend the perimeter well so if i had to if i had to pick one thing it would be health right that's the one thing i would change a healthy jamal murray and a healthy michael porter jr dramatically change the outcome of this series but that's just not the case so then I, I really like Phoenix has just outclassed Denver in every other aspect of this series. So truly it came down to health, but I think if you're Denver, you're looking for a Bradley Beal or you're looking for, I mean, Donovan Mitchell's not on the market, but that level of player, because Jamal Murray has been great, but I just, if he's your number one perimeter guy, again, it's, it's tough for guys under, six foot three to really be the number one guy. And the only one who's really successfully done it is Isaiah Thomas on those Pistons teams. And then of course, Steph Curry and Damian Lillard and uh, Chris Paul have been this generation's version, but like really only Curry is the one who's had any success on his own. Uh, But then of course, Kevin Durant comes in, it changes the, the complete outlook of that team, but it's just tough for a smaller guy. Do you need that type of player though with someone as special as Jokic? I the 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 answer is yes based on this series, right? And yeah, and just one more shot creator. Yeah, it's it, it's so tough to know because of the health of Denver, but that's the thing is you always have to factor in health. So it would be nice to have one more guy so that if someone goes down, you can still rely on on an extra shot creator. Jamal Murray would immensely change this series just by itself i hear that so i guess what i'm thinking or saying is if it's a matter of your star player's health then i feel like it's about getting more role players getting more guys to carry the load throughout the regular season and that you hope that's enough to get you in like prime healthy position for playoffs versus like oh no we need to get out and like make a change improvement to this core and 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 that's something that denver had most of the season they gave up a little bit of that depth when they went and and acquired aaron gordon that was the decision they made is we they said we're going to go a little bit more top heavy 
Um, Jim Elmer was healthy at the time and Aaron Gordon was going to be their guy to take those bigger wings, right? He was going to be the wing stopper, but as soon as Jamal goes down, things thin out. Will Barton also goes down and then you're missing Gary Harris. You're missing RJ Hampton. Um, and, and it gets awful thin and you got to get Austin rivers on a, on a contract for the rest of the season. And PJ Dozier's out as well. It's just, yeah, it, things crumpled quickly for Denver and, and it's a bummer because I think they had a pretty decent shot this season with the way Jokic had played. And what better time could you make that decision to trade depth for a little more top end than the trade deadline, the last possible minute. So yeah, they made a wise decision in at the time and in hindsight it didn't work out. I, if Denver doesn't, Oh no, it's a timeout. <laughs> Looks I like to, I was yeah. about to say, if Denver doesn't get this drive, we can call the series, but they've got 18 seconds and seven points to try and make up on timeout right now. Doesn't look so, good. No, we, if, if you're watching this, on monday then we can probably say wow the phoenix suns have swept the nuggets and won't sound like total idiots but and and chris paul maybe gets his last or second last opportunity to get through the western conference finals which has been his biggest adversary so how huge is it with the injuries that he's probably going to have almost a week to heal up oh it's huge and again the same thing that i say about Mm -hmm the jazz had an advantage because the Clippers had the Mavericks took a bite out of them, right? No matter what you say, playing seven games of playoff basketball against any team is not a walk in the park. And so even if the Clippers get out of this series, even if Utah gets out of this series, they're going to have some bumps and bruises and and Phoenix is going to be a little bit fresher and, and be able to take a little bit more. So it'll be fascinating to see, uh, <laughs> what's going to come of this other Western conference series and, and can Chris Paul finally break through because he, God knows he deserves it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's it for us. A huge rundown of sports action from this weekend. Um, many awesome things to come over the week. Looking forward to all the Euro cup action. All of the playoff action, of course, baseball is going every day. You always turn it on and, and get some baseball going and uh, lots of fun stuff around the corner, not just in the world of sports, but with things reopening, I'm looking forward to going to a beach. I'm looking forward to, I don't know, just going for a walk in the sun and feeling on my face and maybe seeing a friend in the park. It's just it's different times, right? And, and it's nice to get back to the way things were. And yeah, just feeling good going into this week. So I hope everyone else is having had a great weekend, having great vibes. And thanks for listening. Hope you're doing well. I think I really might be onto this something with intent to score foul NBA rule change. What do you think? Mm-hmm. Let me know. Sports Next Door signing out. <laughs>